This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And hello, America. Welcome to another edition of Greg's List Live, your home for serious journalism, only on America's WebRadio.com. I've uh, got the pleasure of having a co-host in the studio today, Rachel Dodsworth. She's the owner and founder of Adsworth Media and several other uh, companies and, and enterprises, as I found out as she invited me to several of her Facebook pages that she is the owner, principal, and um, uh, lead proprietor of them. But uh, Rachel's called in before. We talked a little bit about the Senate race and digital media uh, back during the, um, I guess guess it was during the runoff in the U.S. Senate when we had Jack Kingston and uh, David Perdue on, and I wanted to welcome you back to Greg's List. How are you, Rachel? Hey, Greg. Thanks. Glad to be here. Really glad to be back and uh, help support the conservative cause. Yeah, we we got you in town for a couple things today. I went ahead and took advantage of the uh, opportunity because tonight you're going to be presenting a... uh, a digital media, um, I guess, uh, presentation, conversation, discussion at the Buckhead Young Republicans meeting. That's at 7 p.m. at Whitehall Tavern in Buckhead off of Peachtree Road. And uh, I think it's fascinating because as me and you were talking uh, off air a little bit, digital media has really changed the landscape when it comes to politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Greg, uh, once again, thanks for being here. I look forward to speaking tonight with the Buckhead Young Republicans. Uh, digital media, it's a game changer. Uh, you know, it's everybody thinks about it as social media, but it's starting to evolve a lot more to a news source. And I'm sure you know that with your radio show. People really expect to hear from the candidates directly. And that's a big way digital media shaped campaigns. Right. It's kind of the, the interaction. What um, Basically, digital media is a web presence and then using some of the social media sites like Twitter and Facebook. And in- Instagram has actually evolved into mm-hmm. something that's pretty much, that's just kind of a way to connect with, with uh, you know, the term millennial. I, I don't know exactly what that age group is, but supposedly it's people that were born after Ronald Reagan's presidency. <laughs> that's kind of the way I use that term. I would say it's anybody that's grown up comfortable with a personal computer and that person tends to use technology they may not be uh technocrats if you will but they're somebody that you know can't live without their their smartphone today there's somebody that has multiple social media accounts there's somebody that knows generally uh how to navigate websites and how to do google searches stuff like that I mean, we're growing up now where every person born right now is born into the digital age. You hit a good point. Everybody is born in the digital age. So if we think about it, like back in the day, everyone, they would do one newspaper. We would all read the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Now, none of us could agree where we get our news. And that's the key difference with digital media is there's so many places to get your news. And that's why you have to be everywhere. You have to be on Instagram, Facebook, your website. You have to be pushing that content out. Because you're really in control of the news and where people are going to find you. So just be everywhere. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I majored in journalism at University of Georgia. And, and back when I was there, it was uh, 1997. So the Internet was still in its nascent stage. Al Gore had just invented it for, uh, for all of us to, uh, to peruse. But uh, So I, I was a, a little bit Internet age. We, the main thing that the Internet did for us in the mid to late 90s was it, we were able to avoid going to the library to research uh, material, research, uh, t- term papers, stuff like that. It really helped out 
Email was kind of cool. In fact, I, I still have a Yahoo account from back then. <laughs> that I mean, it is it's pretty funny how much spam goes to that now. I mean, it is dirtier than a brothel in Amsterdam. But uh, <laughs> at least still, it's not AOL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is that? Yeah, that's funny too that you mentioned that because AOL, MindSpring, Earthlink. When you use those, I mean, that how how much does that date a person? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's so much data out there we have from back in the day. I don't even know what's on my AOL chat I had in middle school. I couldn't even tell you. <laughs> the name. Yeah. But yeah, it just goes to show how much everything's evolved and uh, people really expect to communicate you know, with the campaigns now, with your business directly and if you're not online, you're just going to get lost. Uh, you gotta, you have to be able to control your message and as you know, it's hard to get on you know, the newspaper, get somebody to cover you, so just go make the news happen. Uh, and lucky with digital media that's possible now. Yeah, and one of the, the, the side effects that we get of this is this, uh, this new dynamic, if you will, in digital media is anybody can be a, a news person now. Anybody with a computer and internet connection and, and ability to use the keyboard can type up articles. So we are now inundated with, with so much opinion pieces out there that the, the hard news days are gone. In fact, now we've got such a polarization on cable news where you have MSNBC to the left, CNN to the center left, or if there's international news, they basically send the whole damn broadcasting team to, you know, wherever to figure out. Uh, I think they sent a whole team to Madagascar to interview the piece of that Lufthansa plane or the uh, uh, the one that, remember they... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, literally for two days, CNN left everything domestically, and they had an interview with the wing. And then you have Fox News, which is clearly, you know, the, the Republican, the right wing leaning, especially when you watch their shows at night. So people that watch these opinionated shows, it, it seems to me that they not only want to hear the news, but they also want to kind of get told what to think. Exactly. So you brought up a really good point there with the media kind of going to what's breaking. And the biggest thing people need to remember with digital media is you're way more likely to follow news that you want to hear about. So it almost becomes an echo chamber. Back in the day with the newspaper, you read the articles the editor chose. Now I can clearly go find any article I want that will support my ideology. So that's why campaigns, they're going to want to push out as much content as possible. So when you go search any presidential candidate, they want you to find their information, and you're going to find that. Um, you know, clearly we probably both dislike Hillary Clinton, so we're going to look for negative news about her. And that's kind of how the Internet's going, is uh, you can self-censor what you kind of want to read. Well, the good news about it's, it's not too difficult to find negative news on Hillary Clinton these days. And one of the best parts about having all these new avenues is you do have reputable sources. I'll even go to Huffington Post. I don't have to pay for any subscription there, but I'll read to see what they're saying on that side. I usually like when I'm quoting something... I like using the Associated Press. That's why I use Yahoo a lot because they have a lot of AP articles. And this way, it's not coming across from something like a Newsmax or, or something like that that is cons usually reposting something from AP. But if it comes from a right-wing news source, then it has less credibility with kind of the independent thinkers that I'm going for. And that's kind of how I like to put my own spin on things. I, 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 I no longer uh, subscribe to the Edward Murrow philosophy of just the, reporting the facts, though. I, I, I don't say anything untrue, but it is not the whole story. Exactly. Right? People like to hear <laughs> a story. story. Yeah, exactly. People like to have that personal narrative, and, you know, people like that. People like emotions, and it's, uh, I think it's a good thing. People can really have feel heard out there now. You know, there's a lot of bad things going on, so almost everybody can have their own bully p pulpit, if you will, and, uh, you know, it might be wrong information or right information, but that's why, you know, we have 
Adworth Media. We help you control the media online. You know, I think Donald Trump does a great job at that. Uh, just making people believe his truth, almost. And, you know, you can do that with social media. Uh, get people to believe, you know, your point of view. Yeah, well, and, I mean, when you have the the mainstream media as well as social media kind of as uh, effusive lapdogs, if you will, just waiting and hinging on every word. And, and, I mean, really, if you look at Donald Trump, he has basically offended almost every demographic and his poll numbers go up. I, I almost think he could say Jared from Subway is his <laughs> running mate and he'd, his his poll numbers would go up. That would be terrible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we should probably do that sometime. Just throw out a trial balloon and say, "Yeah, you know, my apprentice is a uh, is a uh, Jared," and uh, you know, and see what his numbers do. If they go up, it, that would prove my theory. I mean, I think you have some uh, truth there, Donald Trump. He's he's a unique case uh, with social media. He had such a mega a large presence before the campaign. Right. So it's really just hard to take a slice of that from him, and that's why we recommend to everybody you gotta you have to start building your brand now, uh, start promoting yourself. And Donald Trump shows. I mean, self promotion. We used to think of it as a bad thing. You're supposed to be humble, but now it's mm, promote, yeah, promote, promote. I've never thought that actually. <laughs> I've always believed that if you don't like yourself, then no one else will. Now that sounds a little silly, and actually I get teased a lot because I like my own Facebook posts and Twitter and all that stuff. Uh, finally, I've been able to post some articles showing why I do it because it helps refresh it in people's news cycles. The more likes or comments something has, the more people will read it. And why be narcissistic and post stuff if you don't want people to read it? That's always been my point. Um, let's um, let's look at some of the presidential candidates. I think me and you agree there are several that probably you know are just in there for uh, for the notoriety, maybe to sell books or for Huckabee to pretend he's the white Al, Sh- Al Sharpton and help out Kentucky Democrats and get on TV to, to demagogue things. Who is doing a really good job with it? Besides Trump, we've already talked about him. Uh, who's doing a good job of social media, digital media, besides Donald Trump, uh, in your opinion? Um, I think they're all doing a really great job. I think there's uh, they're all kind of strong different areas. Um, Marco Rubio, I think he's doing a great job with his team outreach. Well, you are on Team Rubio. Uh, Marcus, yeah, it's a great guy. <laughs> the other thing that's unique uh, is his website. It's got a lot of good content on it, and that's what people want is they want something fresh all the time. Okay. So I think Rubio's got great content. Carly Fiora, Fiorina, Fiorina. sorry, I always say her name incorrectly, which is horrible. Uh, <laughs> they're doing a lot of great stuff with search results. Uh, so when you search her in Google, they're going to have uh, custom landing pages to her website to help collect information. Okay. Which is doing great. Bobby. So talk, wait, talk about custom pages for a second. Landing pages? Is that what you're talking mm-hmm. about? Yeah, landing pages. Okay. So landing pages are essentially custom web pages set up that a user only arrives to via search or a paid advertising. And so that page is going to be super specific to what you're searching. So um, it might be an issue uh, exactly related, and it's going to usually have a form on there or a way for the user to get involved with the campaign. So really specific calls to action, such as donate, sign up, volunteer. Um, and that's the best bet. Camp- candidates need to do that because not only do you need to put information out there, you need to get information as well, gotcha. which usually means better information and you know, yeah. donors. And is a landing page good for somebody that uh, there's the exploratory committee? But if you're just thinking of... Uh, Maybe doing something, maybe running for something two years from now just to get something out there. The landing page is, from what my research is, kind of the way to go. 
Oh, everybody needs a landing page. If you have a fully functional website, but you have paid advertising, you need a landing page. Uh, if you don't even have a website, but you're thinking about running, like you said, you need a landing page at minimum. Because if, you if you're going to have your website, um, you're going to need contact form. You're going to need people to get involved. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste of you know your promotion and whatnot. If people Google you and they you know they find you but they don't have a way to give you their contact information you know one chance you really need to take advantage of it and have a landing page set up online uh, just to at least get volunteer information and you know other people's contact info yeah that's what uh, some of the research I've been doing so Carly Fiorina is doing pretty well I'm uh, a Scott Walker fan I tend to think that uh, he, as we discussed off here he is not really controlling his own narrative right now but what he is controlling somewhat is he's he's running the long game Mm-hmm. And so he, they haven't started spending money in Iowa and uh, New Hampshire. And I, I think Scott Walker really needs to do well in Iowa. I think he's going to do well in South Carolina. And those are the two states. I think they could almost leave New Hampshire because, it, you know, if New Hampshire was endemic of the Republican Party, we, we, we're in trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think Scott Walker, I agree with you, he's a great candidate. I think he, he's one of the possibilities of winning the nomination and the presidency. Um, you know, he survived recall elections with labor unions. I can't even imagine ever having to do that. That must be one of the <laughs> hardest things. So, you know, he has staying power. He is in it for the long term. Uh, one thing that I always am just really curious, like you mentioned, is getting control of their message. Uh, every time I read the news, it says Scott Walker's failing. But, you know, we both know he's not failing. He's uh, putting up a great campaign and could be a candidate. Uh, so it's just, you know, getting control of that message yep. for him, I think, will be the next phase after the debate tomorrow. Yeah, well, listen, we're going to go ahead and take our first commercial break here. Uh, we have Michelle Miller calling in as our first guest, and she's running for public service commissioner here in Georgia and has uh, published a, a paper about some of the, the, the pertinent issues going on. And at 2.30, we have Steve Camerata from the Center for Immigration Studies. And if you're tired of listening to Trump bloviate about immigration, you want to hear some real numbers, kind of like me, Listen to this interview. It is going to be amazing. We'll be back in a couple minutes on Greg's List. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. 
Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Greg's List Live, your home for serious journalism only on America's Webradio.com. I'm joined in studio today with Rachel Dodsworth from Adsworth Media. She's co-hosting with me. She'll be speaking at the Buckhead Young Republicans meeting tonight, 7 p.m., Whitehall Tavern. You do not want to miss that. But uh, calling in right now, our friend Michelle Miller, who has announced uh, her candidacy for public service commissioner in the state of Georgia. And uh, she's been doing some writing and and some policy pieces that I've been keeping up with. I think it's pretty interesting stuff. Michelle Miller, welcome to Greg's List. How are you today? I'm doing fine, Greg. Thank you for having me on your show. I truly appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. I I wanted to get you on uh, earlier, but I happened to go to New York uh, last week, and just the scheduling kind of came up. And I think today's a great day. So welcome to the show, and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and uh, your expertise and why you're running for PSC. Thank you. Um, I have a degree in energy and sustainability uh, policy from Penn State University. I did my energy research in Costa Rica, where five, all five renewable energy technology is. I consulted internationally in the U.S. and also won a military contract. And what I want the residents of Georgia to know is that you have a candidate that's willing to fight for you, the residents and the businesses of Georgia. And every single time that you pay your taxes, every single time you pay your electric bill, you are investing in the PSC, and that makes you a shareholder. And you have rights. Did we, did we lose her? Do you hear me? Uh, no, well, yeah, you dropped off there for a second. Um. I'm sorry. No, it's it, it, no, it's it, it's no problem. I think you said something about I was right, so I always like continuing with that. <laughs> well, what I what I want the residents to know is that every single time that you pay your taxes, every single time that you pay your electric bill, you are investing in the PSC, and that makes you a shareholder. And because you are a shareholder in the PSC, you have customer rights. And right now in Georgia, what's happening and actually across the nation, that proverbial line between utility rights and customer rights is being blurred. And one of the big things that's happening is Solar City is suing a public utility. Uh, I think it's called the Salt River Project in Arizona. And this case is actually going to, is going to set a precedent of whether or not we have uh, consumer rights when it comes to public utilities and the rates that they charge. Well, and, uh, you know, the I've talked to some people that are on the Public Service Commission in previous interviews, previous candidates, and uh, it may not be the most exciting um, position, but to me it's very important because you're dealing with what people are are using as far as power every day, as far as uh, pollution in the air that we're going to have to deal with, as far as Obama's war on coal, as far as the EPA goes, as far as Georgia Power's rates. And we have what I've called in the past benevolent monopolies set up, like a southern company and like what they deregulated the gas a few years ago, so you have AGL that owns all the gas lines, but you've got like 37 gas marketers. And, and typically, when you deregulate an 
industry. All you do is open it up for marketers because you can't exactly lay a bunch of new electrical grid or, or you can't lay new pipes. So they just say, well, you can still loan the uh, infrastructure. You just can't sell it anymore. And, you know, we've seen uh, cases now where Southern Company and AGL actually want to merge. And when I talked to you uh, earlier today, there was another, um, I guess it was a lawsuit or something going through the system that you said was going to have a huge impact on us. And uh, I didn't quite have time to research all of that. So can you uh, kind of go over with our listeners what uh, what that impact may be for us and, and the relatives well, on that case? Well, what I'll say is Georgia is going to follow national trends. Uh, especially with renewable energy technology. Take, for example, the HB57 bill. You know, it was specifically written so that the customers can have another option, which is solar. Solar companies within Georgia can participate in this market. And Georgia Power, uh, now they have a, subs- excuse me, a subsidiary coming into the market, and they can take over. And uh, the next thing that you'll see, which is what the Solar City versus the SRT uh, public utility case is all about, is demand fees. Um, the utility is charging fifty dollars uh, for every uh, solar customer uh, that uses solar energy, and that's wrong. And um, I think that can happen here in Georgia. The PSD, Georgia Power, and the EMCs all have the rights. Uh, to charge a fee on solar customers. And I think um, if we have a lot of the, the customers moving towards solar, you'll see that their profit margins will go uh, down and they'll be able to charge that fee uh, to make up the profit loss. Okay. What I'm trying to do as a candidate is really create solutions to prevent that from happening. I'm creating or developing right now the first residential and commercial CHP pilot program in Georgia in fact, it's the first pilot program in the southeast. And what it would do is diversify the EMCs so that they can put downward pressure on uh, utility rates. It will also prevent them from uh, charging that demand charge. And lastly, it will turn electricity into a fixed cost. So just imagine having a business, um, having more fixed costs leads to better uh, manage, excuse me, managing your profits. Just imagine the impact that that can have in a community. Yeah, that would be significant. I think renewables is certainly something, especially in Georgia where we do have a lot of sun, That uh, and solar to me seems like the, the most ready for prime time of the renewables. Uh, Rachel, our, our co-host today, is from uh, Savannah, and they've uh, fairly close to Augusta where they've got the nuclear power. What uh, kind of issues did they have down there? I remember they had some waste management issues from the Savannah River. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what else was going on down there, Rachel? Uh, the big thing I remember with the nuclear power facility facility was, uh, it's the last one to be built in the United States, and I, as I understand it, they are permitting to rebuild two more reactors with that, and uh, I'm not sure where it held up last. I was wondering if we had an update with that, with the nuclear facility, and uh, if they were going to be able to create more reactors there. Well, um, with nuclear waste, uh, the one misconception, well, let me go a little bit further back. I think we paid, I think, almost a $2 billion to the federal government for a nuclear tax uh, to invest in Yucca Mountain. I think that mountain should have been opened so that we can deposit our nuclear waste, and it is sitting there. I think another thing that uh, many uh, do not recognize is that nuclear waste can be used again. Um, we haven't created a market for nuclear waste yet. There's still energy within that waste 
that we can utilize, and it's just sitting there. And I think um, in order for us to move forward, we need to start making long-term plans on how we're going to deal with that instead of just letting it sit down. That's money that uh, we can uh, have within our, our, our state uh, by creating that market. Another thing I wanted to say, you know, with this whole Southern Company buying AGL, it's, it, it is a, a, a definite sign that uh, Southern Company, Georgia Power, is moving away from nuclear uh, generation. Uh, and they're moving towards natural gas generation, which is really good for Georgia because, one, natural gas is really inexpensive. Over the long term, you'll see our rates drop. But my question is, what's going to happen over the short term? I think over the short term, you'll see that um, um, Southern Company will ask AGL and will ask Georgia Power to increase their revenues, which means that you'll see more rate cases happening at the PSC. And uh, secondly, they didn't have the $8 billion to buy AGL. They had to finance that. And because they had to finance it, I think that they would go to the PSC and ask us, uh, to pass along um, that cost to the customers, and I think that's wrong as well. We right. shouldn't be buying AGL for now, Georgia Power or Southern Company. I saw a couple counties down in southern Georgia were looking to add these solar farms, and I've always been of the opinion that solar uh, is the most ready for prime time. It's not as destructive as... Uh, I guess the to me when I see wind, I see these massive turbines that take up a lot of uh, farm a, potential farm acreage. Um, it does destruction yeah. if you like if you're a fan of birds. I mean, <laughs> these wind turbines are just death to the aviation or aviary community. But uh, do you do what if you had to pick one to really pursue as a PSC commissioner? Would you pick wind or solar in Georgia? Neither. Neither. Okay. I, I would actually take uh, CHP, which is combined heat and power. Um, it generates electricity on site, so it can feed into the main grid. It traps that waste heat, and it can heat the building. It can cool the building. It can even take the heat and heat the water. So it has energy efficiency levels upwards of uh, between 85 and 90, 90%, depending on uh, the size of the building and how we're using it. So, and per kilowatt hour, it is the cheapest. I think wind is the most expensive. Solar, I believe that's 60 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, when you take in effect all of the subsidies that's added along the way in that supply chain, CHP actually is uh, one of the, the most uh, inexpensive uh, technologies that we can use. And it, as far as the carbon emission is concerned, um, it's a zero emitter. All right. Well, that's um, – I, I like that. Neither, and you had another idea. Instead of always being the uh, – the Republicans have always been like the party of no, and, and it's good to be obstructing some of Obama's uh, big government ideals. But we also need to be offering our own. And, and again, you're a PSC commissioner. That really is kind of a – it's not it's it is a policy making job but it is certainly not a uh, a partisan one necessarily as you have yeah. to be able to get things done and uh anyway I, I commend you for running a good campaign um and i got about a minute left or so for you to tell our listeners where they can find you where they can learn more about your campaign which your will be in the republican primary i guess uh which will be May 24 next year. So you've got about six or seven months, but there's going to be so much other elections going on that uh, hopefully the Republican primary in Georgia won't get lost in the in the mix. 
Um, you know, there's three things I wanted to say. One, you need a commissioner who has the education and experience to forecast trends because if we don't, if we're not able to forecast, we're, we're not able to create effective and efficient solutions to guide the state of Georgia through these tricky energy waters. And secondly, you can find me on www.michellemillerthenumber4tsc.com. Um, email me. Sign up if you want to volunteer, and we're always accepting donations. All right. Well, I appreciate that. Michelle Miller, Miller running for Public Service Commissioner in Georgia, and uh, we're here with Rachel Dodsworth from Adsworth Media talking to uh, uh, Michelle Miller, Public Service Commissioner. Coming up, we have uh, Steve Camerata, who is the research uh, expert over at the Center for Immigration Studies, and uh, we're going to be talking about some real numbers covering the real threat of illegal immigration and, and, and what the impact of legal immigration is and, and also why Obama might think it's a good idea to import so many folks from a region that is clearly against the United States. I mean, I was shocked when I saw that they wanted to import 10,000 Syrian refugees. The, what I'm reading is that a third of them in Italy don't even want to identify themselves. I don't see any way we can possibly vet all of these folks coming in. And we're already seeing domestic terrorism on the rise. So we'll be back with uh, Steve after that. See you in a couple minutes on Greg's List. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Greg's List Live, the home of serious journalism only on America's web radio station. Uh, Station And we are joined in studio today with Rachel Dodsworth, who will be doing a presentation tonight, Whitehall Tavern, Buckhead Young Republicans, Digital Media. And uh, it's been a great 30 minutes so far, and uh, I'm excited now to have the uh, 
Center for Immigration Studies, their lead researcher, Steve Camerata, on the line now to, to give us some real numbers, rather than this bloviated rhetoric that some in the Republican Party t- think is actually going to appeal to voters. It, it's usually good when you back it up with a cerebral approach, when you back it up with information, statistics, facts, all that stuff that the left tends to uh, shy away from. But uh, Steve Camerata, welcome to Greg's List. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I uh, was able to uh, get in touch with you guys on y'all's website. Y'all have been posting a lot of uh, policy pieces, a lot of research analysis, and uh, luckily the uh, form submission to contact you guys was very easy to fill out, and Marguerite uh, replied back instantly, so that's how we were able to to get you on the show today. And um, there's been a couple pieces that you've put out recently. One showed the um, the percentages of uh, new immigrants and old immigrants that are on government assistance benefits, and you also have some some crime studies that uh, show a little bit of the uh, the, the damage uh, caused by illegal immigration. And the reason I wanted to have you on is so we can actually talk facts and numbers rather than just this kind of angry xenophobic rhetoric that I that I worry is echoing out a lot of the the, the rational voices. So I guess Steve, talk a little bit about the uh, uh, the study showing the the government assistance and what impact that is having on our economy. Well, we, we found that about 51% of households headed by an immigrant access one or more of the government's uh, welfare programs, including cash, housing, or food programs, or Medicaid. Uh, this compares to about 30% of households headed by a native-born person accessing one of these major welfare programs. Um, we also found that uh, that even uh, both new arrivals and even well-established immigrants tend to access welfare at relatively high rates. Households headed by an immigrant who'd been in the country for more than 20 years, of those households, 48% accessed one or more welfare programs. Usually it's two or three programs at a time because um, the programs are, are linked. So uh, welfare use is very common among immigrants. Immigrant welfare tends to be a lot higher for the food assistance programs like like food stamps or free school lunch or WIC than native-born. Um, it's somewhat higher for cash. It's also a lot higher for Medicaid use. Use of housing programs is, is more similar. But uh, immigrants do tend to use the programs kind of across the board at higher rates than natives with the exception of housing programs. Right, and, and in that kind of climate, to me, you know, you, you listen to some of the uh, the rhetoric out there, and they talk about, oh, we're all immigrants. We're all, you know, nobody was born here except some Native Americans. I, I, I look at that, and I look at that argument, and I say, well, you know what? When when my you can trace my lineage a couple hundred years back, most of us that have been here two or three generations – When you come here now, we have this expansive welfare program. So it's a little different. You know, the pilgrims on the Mayflower coming over is a little different now. uh, It was a little different than what we have now where people can run across and access multiple uh, government assistance programs. Is that – and I'm probably getting a little partisan in in that uh, definition there. But what do you say to people that are saying, oh, we're all immigrants and we need to be more benevolent and have an open border system? Well, look, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in your immigrant ancestors or immigrant history, but it may not be very helpful in knowing what to do about a problem in the 21st century. So, yes, immigrants are using a lot of welfare, but it's true that maybe your ancestors came in 1900 or 1850 or whenever and didn't get a lot of welfare, but the fact is welfare didn't exist 
1900 or 1850. So I think the way to step back and be more realistic about it is to say, well, you need an immigration policy that reflects the reality of a welfare state. Um, so the reason that immigrants are using so much welfare, it's not the only reason, but the primary reason is so many legal immigrants, because legal immigrants make up the overwhelming share of immigrants overall and of immigrants on welfare, is that so many legal immigrants have modest levels of education, and illegal immigrants, of course, even more, uh, an even larger fraction have relatively little education. And so people who come and, and do work, I should point out that the vast majority of immigrants on uh, welfare, these households have at least one worker, sometimes more than one worker is present, but they work, but they earn low wages reflecting their educational attainment, and so they can still access welfare programs. Maybe your listeners don't quite realize this, but let me just give you a quick example. If you had a mother and two children, and that mother worked 10 hours a week uh, making, uh, you know, 10 hours, uh, I'm sorry, 10 hours, uh, $10 an hour, and worked roughly full-time year-round and made about 20000 a year, she would still be eligible for just about every welfare program in just about every state. And so that's the thing to keep in mind. If you had to put this in a bumper sticker, what the data on the immigrants show is there's a high cost to cheap labor. They're not coming in and sitting on their butts and just getting checks and food stamps and living in public housing. Mm-hmm. They're working, but they're doing all those things. Right, and, and it's almost like some of these industries that are employing them, they're kind of gaming the system, too. Can we make that argument? Right. Basically, what's happening is an employer is getting a worker that he wants, and the worker is cheap, but taxpayers, in effect, are getting kicked in the teeth. So what happens is you go to a sandwich, to get a sandwich at your favorite restaurant made by an immigrant, and, you know, it's a good sandwich, and it's 12 bucks, and you get your chips and a drink, and you are happy. The employer's happy because he only has to pay $10 an hour. But what you don't realize is that sandwich is actually more like $16 an hour because that immigrant goes home and those kids of that immigrant have to be educated and they get free school lunch and they get WIC and they're signed up for Medicaid and they might have subsidized housing and the parent might get some cash assistance either directly from a program like TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and there's all these other cash programs for low-income workers as well, and the list goes on and on. So, But you don't see any of those costs, and neither does the employer. In fact, to him, it looks great. He's got a worker. The worker's cheap. He passes some of that on to the consumer. He retains some of it in the form of higher profits. In effect, you're, social, you're privatizing the profits, but you're socializing the cost to the rest of society. But he doesn't see those costs. They're diffuse. They're borne by everyone. It would probably make a lot more sense to try to draw back into the labor market the roughly 30 million people who don't have any education beyond high school, who are of working age, that is, they're under 65, who are currently not working. These less educated folks, if you brought them back into the labor market, you'd have to probably pay them more. But that would make a lot of more sense because there's no added cost that are associated with immigration. They're already here. Yes, less educated natives also make extensive use of welfare. But again, there's no new right. cost. They're already well, here. I guess, I guess and I think question. that would make a lot more sense. Yeah. Well, Steve, Remi- uh, just, just to make something clear to your listeners, okay. over the next 20 years, 20 to 25 million new legal immigrants will settle permanently in the United States without most of them because they have a relative here, without regard to their education levels. The question this, these welfare figures raise is, does any of that really make sense for the country? 
Yeah, I guess the question that uh, that we have, um, and, and one that we need to answer as well, are these immigrants, are they taking jobs or filling jobs? And I think you alluded a little bit to that, but uh, that I, you know, are they taking jobs from the 30 million, or are they filling the jobs because the 30 million that uh, are undereducated but are Native Americans, or not Native-born, sorry, not Native, I don't think we have that many in this country anymore, but um, are they taking jobs or filling jobs? Well, it's always very hard to say definitively because you can't run a social experiment. That is, imagine what America would be like without the immigrants over the last 40 years, since 1970, say. Uh, the immigrant population has gone from 10 to about 44 million. So the immigrant population has exploded, but we only have that one America, so we don't know what wages and employment rates and so forth would look like without immigrants. Okay. When we try to measure it, I think the evidence is pretty persuasive that for some categories of American workers, immigration has, has really been taken it on the chin. Their wages are lower, fewer of them work, they work more intermittently as a direct consequence of immigration. We can say without, with, with, with no question that in the sectors of the economy where the immigrants have been very concentrated, where they've increased the supply of workers the most, which would be building, cleaning, and maintenance, which would be construction, which would be agriculture, which would be hospitality, these areas of the economy have seen the worst performance in wages. Um, it's an area where native-born people were once abundantly employed, less educated native-born people, now much less so. So we can say that. We can also say that the kinds of people who do that sort of work who are native-born, not only do they make less, but they're just so much less likely to work. So if you looked at a man who has less than a high school education or only a high school education, the fraction of those people holding a job shows a very dramatic decline in the last few decades as well as their wages as well. So everything would seem to be consistent with the possibility that the immigrants are significantly reducing job prospects and lowering wages, at least for some fraction of the U.S. workforce. But, you know, in economics, there's never a consensus. Show me 10 economists and I'll, give you 11 of di- I'll show you 11 <laughs> different opinions kind of thing. Yeah, I guess um, it, 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 what we can make, um, make a prediction on is... If you look at the, uh, the the big Senate immigration reform bill that, that you know didn't pass, they their own projections basically said it would depress wages for the next ten years. And this, these are the people that were trying to pass this bill. Uh, they would depress wages for the next ten years, and it would only uh, limit illegal immigration by twenty five percent over the next thirty years. And they were trying to get uh, that passed. And, and to me, when I was reading th- their own predictions on that, I was thinking. How how is this conceptually a good idea? Right, because that bill, the thing that was important, it wouldn't just grant amnesty to illegal immigrants. The other thing is it doubled legal immigration from about one million permanent uh, people a year. That's the so-called green card. You can come and eventually be a citizen if you like. The permanent immigration from about one million new green cards a year. They were going to be giving out two million green cards a year on top of that, that's in addition to the legal status and eventual citizenship for 10 to 12 million illegal immigrants. So, yeah, that was a that was a huge deal, and there certainly was a lot of analysis suggesting it would be very costly. And at a time when a record number of Americans are not working, the idea that you would dramatically increase the supply of workers is um, was striking. It was it, it was defeated thanks to a Republican House, but it did seem that it was a kind of 
fundamental disconnect from the realities of the U.S. labor market to say nothing of the issue we started talking about. What are the implications for public coffers of mass immigration of people who work but have modest education and make a modest wages? And no discussion of that. And uh, very careless. Um, and it is truly striking that so many Republicans in the Senate actually voted for it. Yep, Steve, if you can hold on uh, for the commercial break, I wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, article from Ryan Cooper in The Week. Uh, I talked to Marguerite a little bit earlier today, and she said you'd written a response to it, which I purposely did not read because I read this with such uh, repugnance that uh, I wanted to have like a, a visceral reaction w- from you on it. But his uh, this article is Ryan Cooper's The Week, and his question is, how much does welfare for one percenters cost? And it's a little bit of a takedown of the... Uh, Center for Immigration Studies uh, report, and um, it was really interesting to uh, to read your article and then this one, which was uh, kind of uh, debating your article and whether that should be the real question. If you can hold on for a minute or two, I want to talk about this when we get back, okay? And we'll be back on Greg's list in about two minutes. Thanks. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back to Greg's List Live, your home for serious journalism. We're on with Steve Camerata, the head researcher over at the Center for Immigration Study, a think tank in Washington, D.C. Steve, I was uh, I prefaced this a little bit. I did uh, some reading. I've been following y'all's uh, work and research very closely. I uh, married a, a beautiful lady from Ecuador, and we went through the legal immigration process. And uh, both of us uh, take a lot of umbrage with the fact that so many want to do it illegally and avoid the costs and then get all the benefits. So that's why it's a little bit of a a personal issue for me. And I read this article from Ryan Cooper in The Week, and their premise is that the center did not uh, accurately report their numbers. What's interesting in their... uh, 
their article is they don't really dispute your numbers. They dispute the methodology or the fairness in how you calculated that 51% figure. And as I spoke to Marguerite earlier today, I don't know how else you come up with that figure. That seemed like a very rational way to come up with a 51%. And uh, apparently you've written a response to this. So let's talk about the article they wrote and your response to it or and uh, some of these. Right, sure. So one issue would be, look, well, okay, so 51% of immigrant households use welfare, but, uh, you know, uh, is the household the way that you think about these things? Well, the answer is, of course, that's how we tax people, that's how we give out benefits, that is a kind of unit of analysis, because it represents sort of the way, kind of a mutual uh, integrated unit that if you are poor, if you don't have a job, but your wife is working and makes a lot of money, you can't get food stamps because the government counts you all together as a family or a household. So it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to think of an individual. You don't get benefits based on just your individual characteristics. Um, children, of course, are not individuals when it comes to these programs in the sense that they're entirely dependent on their parents, only if their parents are poor. Mm-hmm. So the question here is, and this is up to your listeners, if somebody comes to America, has a kid, and is quite poor, they don't work or they have a very low-wage job, and their kids are on Medicaid and free school lunch and WIC, and they themselves get uh, you know live in public housing, would you say, well, that's a cost of welfare or would you uh, of immigration and welfare? Or would you say, well, no, because the kid was born here, and that kid is a native born American, so that has nothing to do with immigration. <laughs> Seems kind of silly since the kid is only here because their parents were allowed in or snuck into the country, and the parent and all children, the children of natives too, are dependent on their parents. Now, the other thing is that there are some uh, native-born adults in immigrant-headed households. They're often the spouse of an immigrant, so that's not super common, but it's out there. But we report the figures without those people. Take all those households out, and the rate's 52% instead of 51%. So the inclusion of native-born people in immigrant households actually makes the data look a little better for the immigrants. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, Another thing they said is, well, you know, you, you talk a lot about these percentages, but you don't give us the total cost of each of these programs. Um, the reason for that is the data isn't as good at that, but if you want those costs, I have them. Immigrant households getting cash programs, SSI and TANF, get larger payments. So not only are immigrants more likely to be on TANF and, um, and SSI, these are the two big cash programs, when they are on it, they have more members in their family, so they get more money. The same is true of food stamps, and the same is true of the other programs we could measure. So not only are immigrants more likely to be on welfare, but because their households and families are bigger, they get more when they're on it as well. So that seems kind of silly. Yeah. But then they, then they say something that seems, I have to say, idiotic. They say, well, yes, immigrants could get more welfare, but... If you count Social Security as a welfare program, mm-hmm. then it makes the difference not yeah. so great. The immigrants are still worse, but not that much worse. Right. And I read and that, Steve, I read that, and I thought, that's one of the Who thinks that? Right. Nobody does. Because, you know, anybody that's on Social Security, including my parents, they paid into the damn system for 30 years. And the, the whole premise of this article on the week is that these tax breaks for one percenter, they call it welfare for one percenters, is what we should be talking about. And here's some of their welfare. One is the carried 
separate interest loophole. One is exclusion of employee-sponsored retirement. Again, a benefit of working. One is the mortgage interest deduction. So, so the, the, they're saying that only one percenters get the mortgage interest tax deduction, which I, I can dispute that as a mortgage banker. Seventy percent of this country has a home. So 70 percent of this country, not the one percent, is taking advantage of that. Oh, they also say charitable contribution and the deduction of state and local taxes. These are the big-time welfare programs that this article is saying are is so evil that the rich are taking advantage of. Meanwhile, in my opinion, by allowing such a uh, such a welfare state to manifest and exist, we're we're building generational government dependency with uh, the illegal immigrants and the, the the new immigrants that come here and, and immediately sign up for these programs. Well, I mean, look, you can argue against any particular uh, tax benefit. But it seems rather silly to argue that if I get to keep more of my own money that I earned because of a particular tax policy, that's exactly the same as the government feeding me and housing me and providing me health care with somebody else's money that they took away from them (laughs) in taxes and gave to me. They're not roughly the same thing. Now, you could want more taxes on the 1%, a top 1% or top 10% or what have you. That's an interesting policy debate and maybe worth having. But to say that, that, that even if you think that rates should go up, it still doesn't make any sense to bring in lots of immigrants legally or to tolerate illegal immigration that creates all these other fiscal costs for taxpayers. It's kind of a non sequitur. It's like saying, mm-hmm. well, yes, immigrants le- use a lot of welfare, but you know what? We shouldn't have built the B-2 bomber because that's <laughs> a lot of waste of money, too, and that's what we should be talking about. That's what I thought. Well, I thought it was such an incoherent... No, incoherent. incoherent. Maybe we shouldn't have built the B-2 argument. bomber. Perfectly legitimate for you to object to it, maybe. I'm no expert, but we'll, we could talk about that. But that doesn't mean that we should have an immigration policy that dramatically grows the low-income population. It's, it's, it's an odd sort of it's a it's an it's an odd non sequitur. Yeah, it was a disconnected. Crazy. It was a disconnected uh, argument. Steve Camerata. It sounds like you're probably an, an Italian immigrant at some point. So, uh, as we've mentioned before, we're all immigrants from somewhere. The question is, what do we do? Going forward, please check out cis.org. That is the Center for Immigration Studies. Is that the best place to find y'all's research? Yes, everything there is for free, and you can download it there. And we'll be replaying uh, this interview tonight at 6 p.m. as well as uh, 8 a.m. tomorrow, and I'll send you guys copies of the podcast. Steve, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for calling into Greg's List. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, very interesting. When I t- when I Did I lie about getting facts and figures? Oh, he was full of it. I think he uh, <laughs> knew all his numbers for everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and, and I, I guess my question, I, I don't want to bash other Republicans. I also don't necessarily believe Reagan's 11th commandment about not bashing other Republicans. If they're doing bad, uh, or, or I think debating them. We, I don't think we should character trash them. So I'm not going to character trash Donald Trump. But what I will ask him and his supporters is to please research some of these 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 vitriolic statements. And it's easy to find. It's easy to glean these statistics. We even had a the, – we were talking about this leftist uh, article comes out, and they, they say we shouldn't – we they completely distract from the figures. They don't really say that, oh, the figures are incorrect. Is it that hard for Donald Trump? To, to do a little research and pull out one or two of these figures? I'm asking him if he can do that tomorrow at the debate or perhaps one of his Republican opponents. That would be something to talk about. What do you think about that, Rachel? 
I mean, yeah, I just didn't hear there. I'm pretty sure he talks about tax rates and mortgage deductions, so I'm not really sure how that's in the immigrant debate. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everybody needs to do this with facts. Uh, it should yeah, well, be a pretty Steve business was, decision. Yeah, the uh, I guess the, it, I got a little confusing. Basically, there was an article from uh, this, and the they were rebutting his study, the Center for Immigration study, uh, about wel- uh, immigrants and welfare use. And so they this whole article rebutting this is nothing about it, it's not about that necessarily. It's saying, well, let's worry about tax breaks for one percenters. And he's saying that that's a total non sequitur, and it, it it literally is is apples and oranges. So mm-hmm. that's where that conversation came up. And I was pointing out, okay, we've got these six points that they're making in their article, and they have nothing to do with illegal immigration. It has to do with a, a, a massive tax code that we have here. And for them to try to 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 change the focus to me is it's idiotic to to take one of his words. I I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm excited for the debate tomorrow to see how people come. Uh and, you know, develop the, the narrative a little bit. Donald Trump, he keeps telling us they're going to build a wall with a beautiful door, is what he said last night. <laughs> a beautiful door to welcome in people legally that want to do it the right way. So we'll see if he adds to it a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I'm really excited. I think it's a debate everyone we need to talk about, you know. And uh, it's America. We're the land of uh, opportunity. So we'll see how it shapes up. Well, you know, and I've, I've said this a couple times before, is I, I, I want us – to continue to be the land of opportunity. I want I want us to I want it to be the idea or the opportunity of America and not the promise, right? Or the or, or maybe it's better to say the promise of America, not the guarantee. That if you do come here, you're going to have a hell of a chance to improve your life, but it's not guaranteed. There's an inherent risk if you do anything in life. And if you come here, it's the promise of it, but it's not the guarantee. Exactly. I agree with you 100%. It's all about the risk and the reward. You know, I uh, that's the great thing about America is if you fail, you can get up and you know, do it Trump again. Donald Trump has failed a couple times and gotten back up. I think that part of his story is great. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like, you know, I started Asworth Media uh, just because I knew I could. I knew I had to work hard. And you had a million dollars from angel investors. Uh, yeah, and the crazy part <laughs> is I did it with uh, she didn't no really. outside She money. didn't really. I, I, mean, <laughs> I need that sarcasm font on that, guys. Uh, no, yeah, that's the crazy part is, you know, clients uh, funded my business, which is a crazy thing, I guess, nowadays. So, But it goes to show anyone can do it, but you're, like you said, you have to put in the hard work. Nobody's going to give you anything, and you shouldn't get anything for free, you know. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with you, and I think it was uh, pretty interesting points there. Yeah, and, um, you, you know, with uh, I, I guess to, we'll wrap up on this note. Um, I, I just have never understood why liberals don't want to build the wall. That, that could be the greatest infrastructure project. Jobs created. We can even build a moat around the wall and put alligators in the moat and have, like, a national wildlife refuge. Think about it, liberals. Think about it. How much jobs we could create. How much land preservation. Just build the wall. (laughs) Anyway, thank you, Rachel Dodsworth, for joining us. Thank you, Steve Camerata and Michelle Miller as our guests for calling in. This was a great show. Replay tonight at 6 p.m. We'll see you next week on Greg's List. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.